Its meaning is entirely removed from the thought of making upright or holy or good or righteous. This is what is meant when we insist that justification is forensic. It has to do with a judgment given, declared, pronounced. It is judicial or juridical or forensic. The main point of such terms is to distinguish between the kind of action which justification involves and the kind of action involved in regeneration. Regeneration is an act of God in us. Justification is a judgment of God with respect to us. The distinction is like that of the distinction between the act of the surgeon and the act of the judge. The surgeon, when he removes an inward cancer, does something in us. This is not what a judge does. He gives a verdict regarding our judicial status. If we are innocent, he declares accordingly. The purity of the gospel is bound up with the recognition of this distinction. If justification is confused with regeneration or sanctification, then the door is open for the perversion of the gospel at its center. Justification is still the article of the standing or falling church. Justification means to declare or pronounce to be righteous. When equity is maintained, such a declaration or pronouncement implies that the righteous state or standing declared to be is presupposed in the declaration. When a judge, for example, declares a person to be righteous in terms of the law which he is administering, the judge simply declares what he finds to be the case. He does not give to the person the righteous standing. This is why judges must justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Deuteronomy 25.1 Justification in such a case merely takes account of the character and conduct of the person concerned and the judge gives his verdict accordingly. He justifies those who are righteous. The declaration of the fact presupposes the fact which is declared to be. The justification with which we are now concerned, however, is God's justification of the ungodly. It is not the justification of persons who are righteous, but of persons who are wicked, and therefore of persons who are under God's condemnation and curse. How can this be? God's judgment is always according to truth. It is not only one of equity, but one of perfect equity. How then can he justify those who are unrighteous and totally unrighteous at that? We are here faced with something completely unique. It cannot be denied that God justifies the ungodly. Romans 4.5 See also Romans 3 verses 19-24 If man were to do this, it would be an abomination in God's sight. Man must condemn the wicked, and he may justify only the righteous. God justifies the wicked, and he does what no man may do. Yet God is not unrighteous. He is just when he justifies the ungodly. Romans 3.26 What is it that enables him to be just when he justifies sinners? It is here that the mere notion of declaring to be righteous is seen to be inadequate of itself to express the fullness of what is involved in God's justification of the ungodly. Much more is entailed than our English expression declare to be righteous denotes. In God's justification of sinners, there is a totally new factor which does not hold in any other case of justification. And this new factor arises from the totally different situation which God's justification of sinners contemplates and from the marvelous provisions of God's grace and justice to meet that situation. 
God does what none other could do, and he does here what he does nowhere else. What is this unique and incomparable thing? In God's justification of sinners, there is no deviation from the rule that what is declared to be is presupposed to be. God's judgment is according to truth here as elsewhere. The peculiarity of God's action consists in this, that he causes to be the righteous state or relation which is declared to be. We must remember that justification is always forensic or judicial. Therefore, what God does in this case is that he constitutes the new and righteous judicial relation as well as declares this new relation to be. He constitutes the ungodly righteous and consequently can declare them to be righteous. In the justification of sinners there is a constitutive act as well as a declarative. Or, if we will, we may say that the declarative act of God in the justification of the ungodly is constitutive. In this consists its incomparable character. This conclusion that justification is constitutive is not only an inference drawn from the considerations of God's truth and equity, it is expressly stated in the scripture itself. It is with the subject of justification that Paul is dealing when he says, For as through the disobedience of the one man the many were constituted sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be constituted righteous. Romans 5.19 The parallel expressions which Paul uses in this chapter are to the same effect. In Romans 5.17 he speaks of those who receive the free gift of righteousness, and in verse 18 of the judgment which passes upon men unto justification of life through one righteousness. It is clear that the justification, which is unto eternal life, Paul regards as consisting in our being constituted righteous, in our receiving righteousness as a free gift, and this righteousness is none other than the righteousness of the one man Jesus Christ. It is the righteousness of his obedience. Hence grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.21 This is the truth which has been expressed as the imputation to us of the righteousness of Christ. Justification is therefore a constitutive act whereby the righteousness of Christ is imputed to our account and we are accordingly accepted as righteous in God's sight. When we think of such an act of grace on God's part, we have the answer to our question, How can God justify the ungodly? The righteousness of Christ is the righteousness of his perfect obedience, a righteousness undefiled and undefilable, a righteousness which not only warrants the justification of the ungodly, but one that necessarily elicits and constrains such justification. God cannot but accept into his favor those who are invested with the righteousness of his own Son. While his wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men, his good pleasure is also revealed from heaven upon the righteousness of his well-beloved and only begotten. Those justified may well exult in the words of the prophet, Surely shall one say, In the Lord have I righteousness and strength. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. Isaiah 45 verses 24 and 25 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. 
He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Isaiah 61.10 No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Isaiah 54.17 And the protestation of the apostle becomes more meaningful. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Romans 8.33 Justification is both a declarative and a constitutive act of God's free grace. It is constitutive in order that it may be truly declarative. God must constitute the new relationship as well as declare it to be. The constitutive act consists in the imputation to us of the obedience and righteousness of Christ. The obedience of Christ must therefore be regarded as the ground of justification. It is the righteousness which God not only takes into account, but reckons to our account when he justifies the ungodly. This doctrine, however, needs further examination if the biblical basis for it is to be made more apparent. In Genesis 15, verse 6, it is said of Abraham that he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him for righteousness. This text is quoted repeatedly in the New Testament. Romans 4, 3, 9, and 22, and Galatians 3, 6, James 2, 23. And it might appear that it was the faith of Abraham which was reckoned as the righteousness on the basis of which he was justified, that faith itself was accepted by God as fulfilling the requirements necessary for a full and perfect justification. If this were the case then, Abraham was justified, and all other believers also are justified, on the ground of faith and because of faith. It is important to observe in this connection that the scripture never uses such terms. It speaks always of our being justified by faith, or through faith, or upon faith, but never speaks of our being justified on account of faith, or because of faith. If, however, we are justified on the basis of faith, the expression that would most accurately express such a thought would be that we are justified on account of faith. The fact that Scripture, and especially the Apostle Paul, refrains from such terms is itself sufficient to make us careful not to think or speak in any way which would suggest such a view of justification. But there are also numerous other considerations which show that faith is not itself the righteousness, as they also show that the righteousness of justification is not anything wrought in us or done by us. There are several arguments which may be set forth. Number one, a righteousness wrought in us, even though it were perfect and eliminated all future sin, would not measure up to the requirements of the full and irrevocable justification which the scripture represents justification to be. Such a righteousness would not obliterate the sin and unrighteousness of the past and the condemnation resting upon us for our past sin. But justification includes the remission of all sin and condemnation. Consequently, the righteousness, which is the basis of such justification, must be one that will take care of past sin as well as provide for the future. In wrought, righteousness does not measure up to this need, and we must also bear in mind that the righteousness wrought in us by regeneration and sanctification is never in this life perfect. 
Hence it cannot in any sense measure up to the kind of righteousness required. Only a perfect righteousness can provide the basis for a complete, perfect, and irreversible justification. Furthermore, justification gives a title to and secures eternal life. Romans 5, 17, 18, and 21. A righteousness wrought in us equips for the enjoyment of eternal life, but it cannot be the ground of such a reward. Number two, justification is not by the righteousness of performance on our part. It is not of works. Romans 3.20, 4.2, 10.3, 4.3, Galatians 2.16, 3.11, and 5.4, and Philippians 3.9. The scripture is so insistent upon this that it is only by spiritual blindness and distortion of the most aggravated type that justification by works could ever be entertained or proposed in any form or to any degree. The Romish doctrine bears the patent hallmarks of such distortion. Number three, we are justified by grace. It is not the reward of anything in us or wrought by us, but proceeds from God's free and unmerited favor. See Romans 3.24 and also 5 verses 15 through 21. If thus we see that if we are to find the righteousness which supplies the basis of the full and perfect justification which God bestows upon the ungodly, we cannot find it in anything that resides in us, nor in anything which God does in us, nor in anything which we do. We must look away from ourselves to something which is of an entirely different sort in an entirely different direction. What is the direction which the scripture indicates? Number one, it is in Christ we are justified. Acts 13.39, Romans 8.1, 1 Corinthians 6.11, and Galatians 2.17. At the outset, we are here advised that it is by union with Christ and by some specific relation to him involved in that union that we are justified. Number two, it is through Christ's sacrificial and redemptive work. Romans 3.24, 5.9, 8.33 and 34. We are justified in Jesus' blood. The particular significance of this truth in this connection is that it is the once-for-all redemptive accomplishment of Christ that is brought into the center of attention when we are thinking of justification. It is therefore something objective to ourselves and not the work of God's grace in our hearts and minds and lives. Number three, it is by the righteousness of God that we are justified. Romans 1, 17, 3, 21 and 22, 10, 3 and Philippians 3, 9. In other words, the righteousness of our justification is a God-righteousness. Nothing more conclusively demonstrates that it is not a righteousness which is ours. Righteousness wrought in us, or wrought by us, even though it be altogether of the grace of God, and even though it be perfect in character, is not a God-righteousness. It is, after all, a human righteousness. But the commanding insistence of the scripture is that, in justification, it is the righteousness of God which is revealed from faith to faith, and therefore a righteousness which is contrasted not only with human unrighteousness, but with human righteousness. It is righteousness which is divine in quality. It is not, of course, the divine attribute of justice or righteousness, but, nevertheless, 
It is a righteousness with divine attributes or qualities, and therefore a righteousness which is of divine property. Number four. The righteousness of justification is the righteousness and obedience of Christ. Romans 5, 17, 18, and 19. Here we have the final consideration which confirms all of the foregoing considerations and sets them in clear focus. This is the final reason why we are pointed away from ourselves to Christ and his accomplished work. And this is the reason why the righteousness of justification is the righteousness of God. It is the righteousness of Christ wrought by him in human nature, the righteousness of his obedience unto death, even the death of the cross. But as such, it is the righteousness of the God-man, a righteousness which measures up to the requirements of our sinful and sin-cursed situation, a righteousness which meets all the demands of a complete and irrevocable justification, and a righteousness fulfilling all these demands because it is a righteousness of divine property and character, a righteousness undefiled and inviolable. Grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.21 Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. In thy name shall they rejoice all the day, and in thy righteousness shall they be exalted. Psalm 89 verses 15 and 16 Justification is an act which proceeds from God's free grace. It is an act of God and of God alone. And the righteousness which supplies its ground or basis is the righteousness of God. It might seem that this emphasis upon divine action would not only make it inappropriate, but inconsistent for any activity of which we are the agents to be given any instrumentality or efficiency in connection with justification. But the scripture makes it quite clear that activity on the part of the recipient is given its own place in relation to this act of God's grace. The activity on the part of the recipient is that of faith, and it is faith alone that is brought into this relationship to justification. We are justified by faith, or through faith, or upon faith. See Romans 1, 17, 3, 22, 25, 26, 27, 28, and 30, and chapter 4, verse 3, 5, 16, and 24, and chapter 5, verse 1. Galatians 2:16, 3, 8 and 9, and chapter 5, 4 and 5, and Philippians 3:9. There have been good Protestants who have maintained that this faith is not the antecedent of justification, but the consequent, that we do not believe in order to be justified, but we believe because we have been justified, and that the faith referred to is the faith that we have been justified. The witness of scripture does not appear to bear out this view of the relation of faith to justification. It is true, of course, that there is a faith which is consequent to justification. We cannot believe that we have been justified until we are first justified. But there is good reason for insisting that this reflex or secondary act of faith is not the faith in view when we are said to be justified by faith and that this faith by which we are justified is the initial and primary act of faith in Jesus Christ, by which in our effectual calling we are united to Christ and invested with his righteousness unto our acceptance with God and justification by him. 
There are several considerations which favor this view of scripture teaching. I shall mention only two. Number one, it appears quite unnatural and forced to regard the sustained emphasis of the scripture that we are justified by faith in another way. When the scripture speaks of justification in these cases, it does not refer to our consciousness or assurance of justification, but to the divine act by which we are actually justified. Justification does not consist in that which is reflected in our consciousness. It consists in the divine act of acquittal and acceptance. And it is precisely this that is said to be by faith. Number two, there is one passage in Paul which is quite illuminating in this respect. It is Galatians 2.16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. Paul here says that we have believed in Jesus Christ in order that we might be justified by the faith of Christ. In a word, faith in Christ is in order to justification and is therefore regarded as antecedent to it. See also Romans 4, verses 23 and 24. We may conclude that the scripture means to teach that the justifying act of God supervenes upon the act of faith, that God justifies those who believe in Jesus and upon the event of faith. But faith, we must remember, is an act or exercise on the part of man. It is not God who believes in Jesus Christ, but the sinner who is being justified. Therefore, faith is an indispensable instrumentality in connection with justification. We are justified by faith, and faith is the prerequisite. And only faith is brought into relation to justification. Why is this the case? It could be sufficient for us to know that in the divine appointment it is so. Oftentimes, in the revelation of the counsel of God, this is all we can say, and it is all we need to say. But in this case, we can with good warrant say more. There are apparent reasons why justification is by faith and by faith alone. First, it is altogether consonant with the fact that it is by grace. Therefore, it is of faith in order that it might be according to grace. Romans 4.16 Faith and grace are wholly complementary. Second, faith is entirely congruous with the fact that the ground of justification is the righteousness of Christ. The specific quality of faith is that it receives and rests upon another, in this case Christ and his righteousness. No other grace, however important it may be in connection with salvation as a whole, has this as its specific and distinguishing quality. We are justified, therefore, by faith. Third, justification by faith and faith alone exemplifies the freeness and richness of the gospel of grace. If we were to be justified by works in any degree or to any extent, then there would be no gospel at all. For what works of righteousness can a condemned, guilty, and depraved sinner offer to God? That we are justified by faith advertises the grand article of the gospel of grace that we are not justified by works of law. Faith stands in antithesis to works. There can be no mixture of these two. See Galatians 5.4 That we are justified by faith is what engenders hope in a convicted sinner's heart. He knows he has nothing to offer. 
and this truth assures him that he needs nothing to offer. Yea, it assures him that it is an abomination to God to presume to offer. We are justified by faith, and therefore simply by entrustment of ourselves, in all our dismal hopelessness, to the Savior whose righteousness is undefiled and undefilable. Justification by faith alone lies at the heart of the gospel, and it is the article that makes the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. Justification is that by which grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life. It is for the believer alone, and it is for the believer by faith alone. It is the righteousness of God from faith to faith. See Romans 1.17 and 3.22 It is an old and time-worn objection that this doctrine ministers to license and looseness. Only those who know not the power of the gospel will plead such misconception. Justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Justification is not all that is embraced in the gospel of redeeming grace. Christ is a complete Savior, and it is not justification alone that the believing sinner possesses in him. And faith is not the only response in the heart of him who has entrusted himself to Christ for salvation. Faith alone justifies, but a justified person with faith alone would be a monstrosity which never exists in the kingdom of grace. Faith works itself out through love, Galatians 5, 6. And faith without works is dead, James 2, verses 17 through 20. It is living faith that justifies, and living faith unites to Christ, both in the virtue of his death and in the power of his resurrection. No one has entrusted himself to Christ for deliverance from the guilt of sin, who has not also entrusted himself to him for deliverance from the power of sin. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Romans 6 verses 1 and 2 Chapter 6 Adoption Adoption is an act of God's grace distinct from and additional to the other acts of grace involved in the application of redemption. It might seem quite unnecessary to say this, does not the term itself and the specific meaning which attaches to it clearly imply its distinctiveness? Yet it is not superfluous to emphasize the fact that it is a distinct act, carrying with it its own peculiar privileges. It is particularly important to remember that it is not the same as justification or regeneration. Too frequently it has been regarded as simply an aspect of justification or as another way of stating the privilege conferred by regeneration. It is much more than either or both of these acts of grace. Justification means our acceptance with God as righteous and the bestowal of the title to everlasting life. Regeneration is the renewing of our hearts after the image of God. But these blessings in themselves, however precious they are, do not indicate what is conferred by the act of adoption. By adoption, the redeemed become sons and daughters of the Lord God Almighty. They are introduced into and given the privileges of God's family. Neither justification nor regeneration expresses precisely that. A text which sets forth this special character of adoption is John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them gave he right, authority, to become children of God, to those who believe on his name. 
we become children of God by the bestowment of our right or by the conferring of authority and this is given to them who believe on Jesus' name. There are a few things to be said, however, about the relation of adoption to these other acts of grace. Number one, though adoption is distinct, it is never separable from justification and regeneration. The person who is justified is always the recipient of sonship, and those who are given the right to become sons of God are those who, as John 1.13 indicates, were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Number two, adoption is, like justification, a judicial act. In other words, it is the bestowal of a status or standing, not the generating within us of a new nature or character. It concerns a relationship and not the attitude or disposition which enables us to recognize and cultivate that relationship. Number three, those adopted into God's family are also given the spirit of adoption whereby they are able to recognize their sonship and exercise the privileges which go with it. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, 6. See also Romans 8, verses 15 and 16. The spirit of adoption is the consequence but this does not itself constitute adoption. Number four, there is a close relationship between adoption and regeneration. So close is this connection that some would say that we are sons of God both by participation of nature and by deed of adoption. There is scripture evidence which might support this inference. There are two ways whereby we may become members of a human family. We may be born into it or we may be adopted into it. The former is by natural generation, the latter is by legal act. It may be that scripture represents us as entering into the family of God by both, by generation and by adoption. However, this does not appear to be conclusive. In any case, there is a very close interdependence between the generative act of God's grace, regeneration, and the adoptive. When God adopts men and women into his family, he ensures that not only may they have the rights and privileges of his sons and daughters, but also the nature or disposition consonant with such a status. This he does by regeneration. He renews them after his image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. God never has in his family those who are alien to its atmosphere and spirit and station. Regeneration is the prerequisite of adoption. It is the same Holy Spirit who regenerates who is also sent into the hearts of the adopted, crying, Abba, Father. But adoption itself is not simply regeneration, nor is it the spirit of adoption. The one is prerequisite, the other is consequent. Adoption, as the term clearly implies, is an act of transfer from an alien family into the family of God himself. This is surely the apex of grace and privilege. We would not dare to conceive of such grace, far less to claim it apart from God's own revelation and assurance. It staggers imagination because of its amazing condescension and love. The Spirit alone could be the seal of it in our hearts. I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man, the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. 
1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 and 10. It is only as there is the conjunction of the witness of revelation and the inward witness of the Spirit in our hearts that we are able to scale this pinnacle of faith and say with filial confidence and love, Abba, Father. Adoption is concerned with the fatherhood of God in relation to men. When we think of God's fatherhood, it is necessary to make certain distinctions. There is, first of all, God's fatherhood, which is exclusively Trinitarian, the fatherhood of the Father, the first person of the Trinity, in relation to the Son, the second person. This applies only to God the Father in his eternal and necessary relation to the Son and to the Son alone. It is unique and exclusive. No one else, not even the Holy Spirit, is the Son in this sense. It does not apply to angels or men. In modern theology, it is sometimes said that men by adoption come to share in Christ's sonship and thus enter into the divine life of the Trinity. This is a grave confusion and error. The eternal Son of God is the only begotten, and no one shares in his sonship, just as God the Father is not the Father of any other in the sense in which he is the Father of the only begotten and eternal Son. In relation to men, there is what has sometimes been called the universal fatherhood of God. It is true that there is a sense in which God may be said to be the father of all men. Creatively and providentially, he gives to all men life and breath and all things. In him all live and move and have their being. It is this relation that is referred to in such passages as Acts 17 verses 25 through 29, Hebrews 12:9, and James 1:18. Since we are the offspring of God, since he is the father of spirits and the father of lights, it may be scriptural to speak of this relation which God sustains to all men in creation and providence as one of fatherhood and therefore of universal fatherhood. There are other passages in scripture which might appear to speak even more explicitly of this relation in terms of fatherhood, but when examined carefully, some of them can clearly be shown not to refer to this fatherhood, and others more probably refer to a much more specific and restricted fatherhood. In Malachi 2.10, for example, Have we not all one father? Hath not God created us? It is not by any means certain that the allusion is to original creation and to God as father of all men in virtual creation. What needs in any case to be noted is that on relatively few occasions in scripture is the relation which God sustains to men in virtue of creation and general providence spoken of in terms of God's fatherhood. The term father as applied to God and the title son of God as applied to men are all but uniformly in scripture reserved for that particular relationship that is constituted by redemption and adoption. This teaches us the lesson that the great message of scripture respecting the fatherhood of God, the message epitomized in such a text as, Ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, Romans 8.15, or in the prayer which Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, Matthew 6.9, is not that of the universal fatherhood of God, but the message of that most specific and intimate relationship which God constitutes with those who believe in Jesus' name. To substitute the message of God's universal fatherhood 
for that which is constituted by redemption and adoption is to annul the gospel. It means the degradation of the highest and richest of relationships to the level of that relationship which all men sustain to God by creation. In a word, it is to deprive the gospel of its redemptive meaning. And it encourages men in the delusion that our creaturehood is the guarantee of our adoption into God's family. The great truth of God's fatherhood and of the sonship which God bestows upon men is one that belongs to the application of redemption. It is true in respect of all men no more than our effectual calling, regeneration, and justification. God becomes the father of his own people by the act of adoption. It is the marvel of such grace that constrained the Apostle John to exclaim, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. 1 John 3.1 And to assure his readers of this privilege as a present possession, and not simply a hope for the future, he adds immediately, And we are. To indicate the cleavage which this status institutes among men, he continues, On this account the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Lest there should be any doubt regarding the reality of the sonship bestowed, he insists, Beloved, now are we the children of God. Verse 2 John had pondered and learned well the words of the Lord himself when he said, He that loveth me shall be loved of my Father. If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. John 14, verses 21 and 23. And now in writing his first epistle, his heart overflows with wonderment at this donation of the Father's love. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed on us. It is specifically the Father's act of grace. John could not get over it, and he never will. Eternity will not exhaust its marvel. God becomes the Father of his own people by the act of adoption. It is specifically God the Father who is the agent of this act of grace. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God, and we are. 1 John 3, one. The question arises, who is to be regarded as the Father of those who are adopted into God's family? Is it God viewed as the three persons of the Trinity, or is it specifically God the Father? And when the people of God address God as Father, whom are they addressing? Is it the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or is it the Father, the first person of the Godhead? It is to this question that we must now turn our attention. There are several considerations drawn from the scripture which indicate that it is God the Father who is the Father, and that by adoption the people of God become sons of the first person of the Trinity. At least the scripture would indicate that when the fatherhood of God in relation to man is contemplated, it is the father specifically who comes into this relation to them. Number one, the title father is the distinguishing name of the first person of the Trinity. This title belongs to him, first of all, because in the relations of the persons of the Godhead to one another, he alone is father, just as the second person alone is son and the third person alone is Holy Spirit. When our Lord spoke of the Father and addressed the Father, it was always the first person of the Trinity whom he had in view. It is the first person alone who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, 
In John 20:17, we have a very instructive word of our Lord. There Jesus is reported by John as having said to Mary Magdalene, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended unto the Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. It is clear that when Jesus said, I am not yet ascended unto the Father, he could mean none other than the first person of the Trinity, the Father. Again when he continued, I ascend unto my Father, he meant none other than the first person, because only the Father could Jesus call my Father. But the important observation for our present purpose is that the same person who Jesus calls my Father, he also calls the Father of the disciples. The Father to whom Jesus was about to ascend is not only his Father, but also the Father of the disciples. It is the same person of the Father, though the distinctness of the relationship to the Father is jealously guarded by our Lord. He does not say, I ascend to our Father, but rather, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Number three, Jesus very frequently calls the Father, the first person of the Trinity, my Father who is in heaven. The form of expression slightly varies, but it is always to the same effect. And he also, in speaking to his disciples, uses the same kind of expression, your Father who is in heaven. When Jesus speaks of his own Father in heaven, he can refer to none other than the Father. Hence the similarity of expression in the title, your Father who is in heaven, would lead us to the conclusion that the same person is in view, and that it is the Father who is regarded as the Father of the disciples. Number four. In the New Testament in general, the title, the Father, is undoubtedly the personal name of the first person of the Trinity. In the epistles of Paul, quite frequently the title, God, is also the personal name of the first person, in distinction from the Son and the Spirit. In several passages also, the first person is called the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See Romans 15.6, 2 Corinthians 1.3 and 11.31, Ephesians 1.3, Colossians 1.3, and 1 Peter 1.3. There can be no question but this is the Father in distinction from the Son and the Spirit. The same is true of the title, God the Father, or its close equivalent. See Galatians 1.1, 1, 1, Ephesians 6.23, Philippians 2.11, 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, 2 Thessalonians 1.2, 1, 1 Timothy 1.2, 2 Timothy 1.2, Titus 1.4, 1, 1 Peter 1.2, 2 Peter 1.17, 2 John verse 3, Jude 1, and Revelation 1.6. In nearly all these passages, God the Father is distinguished from the Son, and in 1 Peter 1.2 from the Holy Spirit. Now the important observation for our present interest is that when God is called the Father of believers, we have close similarity of expression to that which we find in these cases just cited, where there can be no question that the person of the Trinity in view is the Father, the first person. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.